So welcome everyone. In this episode, we're going to be talking about closed borders and open borders. We'll also be discussing nationalism as opposed to patriotism, their differences and the history of both of them. And we'll also be discussing what a world would look like without nations, and without borders, and what good could possibly come from this. So as Connor said, we were focusing because COVID-19, we've seen a lot of borders be closed. Um, to the outside world, people wonder how you know hit on the globalized trade. How will that be affected in the future? And will this make countries look turn towards self-reliance? Um, and is that a good idea? Uh, and then stemming from that, it leads to internationalism, like Connor said. Just one bit of housekeeping before we start. Um, this episode nine. Next episode, we did want to be a mailbag. Um, unfortunately, we've had no questions so far. Um, I don't know, maybe there's not much appetite, but we would like to do that. Uh, it doesn't have to be, there's no questions, stupid. It's just any questions you guys had to go further about the last episode, or maybe a counter argument. You know, we, we might have raised a point that you disagreed with, or you said, oh, you haven't gone into that, that, that much, or you haven't covered this, you haven't covered this, what about this? If any of those questions did arise, um, or any further debate you had, and you realized some other points came up, or we you know we'd love to learn more about the subjects we do, because we don't become experts on them we just look into them if anyone has anything you can just dm us or if you know connor and i i guess message us yes we would very much appreciate uh, your feedback and your response mm. in the instagram poll which i believe mm. is still up yeah hopefully it's still up great but yeah turning from our plea to you to plea to the nation in the form of nationalism mm. and we're gonna i guess we start We've got these two terms, nationalism and patriotism. I think we're going to focus on them, and it's always good to clarify our terms. So what are the definitions you would give for nationalism and patriotism? Or what are the differences people should note? So the Merriam-Weber definition of nationalism is a loyalty or a devotion to a nation, and especially a sense of national consciousness. So it's a, a collective identity, and also you're devoted to that identity as well. But it also describes it as exalting one nation above all others to promote its culture and its interests uh, as opposed to other nations. So implicitly in the definition of nationalism, there is a, a superiority to your nation as opposed to other nations. It can be quite a malicious term in that sense, in that you, you think yourself better than others by subscribing to such a, an ideology as opposed to patriotism, which is just uh, displaying thanks and, and, and devotion to your culture that happens to be in your country. That would be more of a, a kind of patriotic sentiment rather than a nationalistic, which is at the expense of others. Yeah. Uh, so that's the nationalism, patriotism divide. Nationalism obviously is an umbrella term. There's different forms of nationalism even today. Um, so we'll be drawing a bit off. There's a very interesting debate had on Intelligence Squared. And if you guys visit the Intelligence Squared YouTube page, they uh, have loads of interesting debates. But this one was uh, focused on nationalism. And a big part of the setting up that debate was how would you find nationalism or um, good and bad nationalism. And it was important to focus on two types. So you have American nationalism is its own branch, really focusing on love of freedom, democracy. Uh, and then Chinese and Russian nationalism are, are different in themselves. Indian nationalism has come to the fore more recently with the election of uh, Modi, their prime minister. And UK has its nationalism as well. It, these populist movements can revert to nationalist, nationalist um, rhetoric. So we, we see it all around us. It does come in different forms. And it's important to notice, is nationalism always bad or is it always good? Uh, I think it might be good to start looking at the the roots of nationalism and a history. So patriotism comes before nationalism in terms of coinage. Nationalism is first coined by a German philosopher, Johann Gottfried Herder, who's trying to write about nationalism uh, around the turn of the 19th century. And Herder speaks to the difference of 
peoples and nations uh, and by nations he means the state really. so it's how peoples the peoples the culture the folk as the word is in german um how are they different from a, a state you have um but and then nationalism sort of developed to have you know it could be a state a historic community a race from the start nationalism is exclusive in a way it patriotism is love for one's own country but it allows it almost as a positive like others could love your country as well nationalism is these are my peoples this race this community but it looks to draw boundaries so if you see even in the history of german nationalism at the same time they were um seeing that you know the french people the french german speaks on the border or the czech germans in um the Sudetenland. At the same time, they were saying those people were German. They were trying to clarify that the Jews who grew up in Germany and, and the Slavic people who lived in Germany weren't German. So it is trying to draw distinctions, which is where that and obviously German nationalism later gets these massive negative connotations when it is linked to Hitler and his search for um, Lebensraum for the German people and the Aryan race. And that's a, a word on nationalism. And the reason nationalism takes this sort of, it's not an exact science. It, it kind of cuts both ways. You're a German because you speak German, but you're not a German because you're of Jewish descent. Because it's not a, a tick box, game of tick box. It's more, nationalism comes from the uh, post-Enlightenment romantics. And we spoke about them with, when we looked at Rousseau in episode seven. And Rousseau didn't appeal to the sciences. He appealed to people's, uh, sentimentality or sensibility um, which is sort of a, a naked passion a prehistoric your intuitions your what you know so it's expressed in music and poetry and art but it's not expressed in the sciences it's that ineffable quality um, which is interesting because maybe language doesn't go far enough but I do think it has the flaw when if you start to define nationalism as something in relation to sensibility then it's easy to have this idea of he's a German, he's not a German, and it it seem, it can be unfair or you can cut people out, and it has quite you know it replies it's quite base, just appealing to those uh, human animal instincts. But this is my tribe, this is my country, this is my people, and that's kind of the state we find nationalism in around the eighteen hundreds. But I wonder, if there's something you want to add to that, Connor? Or yeah, so um, when researching the history of of nations and, and national identity, I arrived at the kind of history of flags. Mm. And flags play a huge part in how we see nations um, and how other nations see nations, actually. And the study of the history, symbolism and usage of flags is called vexillology, which is quite a cool name in my opinion. But again, they seek to study the symbolism and the kind of weight that a flag bears upon its own nation and upon others. Now, historically, flags have been used in war environments for military purposes to recognize who is part of my army and is my army still standing out on the battlefield? Are the bannermen still holding their banners? So we can see flags are very, uh, a kind of very easy visual way of identifying who is with you and who is not, who is, is a kind of us or them that I'm standing before. And so that's why flags have a real power. And even today we see that with, uh, be it the Union Jack or the United States flag. Some of these flags are, you know, people, people have a huge amount of respect for flags. And in America, there's a whole code around uh, what you can and can't do with the flag, whether you can't put it on the ground or it has to be always stored on a, on a, uh, a tabletop. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it kind of eerily echoes uh, kind of etiquette around religious texts, so be it the Bible or the Quran, um, there's always a kind of code of where you place it. So you arrive at a very interesting divide, which is the symbol itself and that which it symbolizes. So you have the flag, which is the symbol, and what it symbolizes, perhaps it symbolizes uh, liberty, perhaps it symbolizes your history, or a, a very uh, endearing quality of your country. People tend to overlook this nowadays. 
and flags have become a symbol of oppression and they have been for a very long time there's many countries out there which have the united kingdom as uh, flag the union jack as part of their own flag and again that stems from the colonial period uh, when the navy would seize various islands and lands especially in places like oceana um, and they they still have those flags today. So Australia is a classic example, New Zealand as well. A lot of the smaller islands in the area, they still have um, the Union Jack as part of their flag. So it can be a symbol for oppression. And it's also in that light, very easy to gather around and form nationalistic sentiments underneath a flag. It's very easy for people to look at a flag and go, oh, I relate to that flag. I'm from this place and someone else. There could be hundreds of miles between you, but actually you, the flag provides uh, a kind of unity that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So you said a bit about language and words and you need a language to be able to express certain ideas. And without those words, you wouldn't be able to express such ideas, but without a flag, Mm. Would you be able to bring so many people together? Yeah. So a flag, you say it's a symbol mm. and symbols are something more than words. They have meaning more than words because you can't define what a flag means. You can label a flag, the flag of France, the flag of the UK. You can't define what a flag means to someone to look at it, especially you mentioned the Americans with not laying the flag on the floor. A patriotism so obsessed and so focused on the a a symbol uh some cloth in the sense the flag it but it has so much meaning for these people because it stands for something it stands for a lot more um but it's interesting you say that you know we're talking, about, we're talking about standing and the flag stands for something it's something to rally around it gives us a them and us and there's always history of war around the flag and defending the flag but nationalism so Rousseau looked to, the, to a state of nature as something beautiful, not beautiful, but bef uh, he says man is born free, but everywhere he is, he is in chains. So before we're in the state of nature, we have in the state of nature, we're not we're not chained by society. And nationalism yearns for a almost state of nature of the people. And it's it can be quite mythical in a sense. You have national myths or, or history that has been exaggerated or retold or it's it's carried through the stories of the country it's carried through the collective conscious of the people but nationalism itself it's something very hard to put your finger on in fact some argue that it's not even nationalism isn't it doesn't obtain at all to the truth because really there is no inherent bond between people based on their country it's just a, it's something made up it's a it's a uh, it's a mirage and it, i think the nationalism can be focused on this myth sometimes a lot of times you have the your, your foundation myths of the country and or perhaps you know a lot of flags you say flags will have a red on them which symbolizes the blood of the people who fought for a country um that's oftentimes why you see red on a flag and that's part of the myth is these people fought for the country they died for the country they died for the idea they died for us as you say the them and the us they died for us they died for we so it's very powerful nationalism to draw people together um but once you have nationalism, mythical or true, as a force, and this is actually the uh, motion of the debate from Intelligence Squared, but I wanted to put it to you and see what your reaction was. The motion is nationalism is a force for good in the world. Mm. And I wonder what you thought about that statement, and what your initial reaction was to it. Yeah, so initially, I would agree with that. Mm. I would think that nationalism can be a force for good. The reason for this is that I think humans tend to work better in smaller groups it's very hard to control a huge group without introducing a kind of hierarchy of of leaders right and for something like an entire nation millions of people to cooperate and kind of uh, universalize a set of ideas a set of uh, beliefs and um, kind of cultural policies that everyone can agree on and then start working to the betterment of everyone in that society. That's quite a hard feat to achieve without everyone sharing these common ideas and, uh, and sharing this culture that we see in today's kind of nations. So I think 
nationalism can be a real force for good. It can be a, a real driving force for civilization in that we can achieve more, we can learn more, we can teach more, we can build more. I mean, in that, it begs the question, is that better? Like you mentioned with Rousseau's state of nature, it could be argued that actually all this uh, advancement that we say today could actually be corruption of the natural good that is within us uh, from when we're born and from that earlier kind of primitive state. But I would say that actually it, you can achieve more and, and for the betterment of more people. However, na that's one version of nationalism. And obviously there's many versions. It's very hard to to to, to kind of underline the specific one that I'm talking about. But of course, with nationalism becomes the articles and the news on extremists, uh, nationalists, which are people that take it very far. They're very extreme. And like we said at the beginning, this kind of exclusion mentality of, of uh, at the detriment of others, we're going to rise up and we're going to be the best, our nation. It's not about them, it's about us. And so if there was one nation on earth, there was only one nation, nationalism would be an incredible force to be able to rise everyone up in that nation. The problem is, is that there isn't just one nation. There's many and they, li and they are actually borders with each other. And so they have to interact with each other at those borders on a daily basis. And thus the nationalism that we see, which enforces uh, exclusion and enforces this mentality of we are the best, that has no place in a modern society. Mm -hmm. So perhaps my conception of nationalism would also be, also almost be a, a super nationalism, kind of many nations coming together to provide a force for good for every individual. I, I personally disagree with that, that opening statement when I first heard it, but some of the points you make are, are worth reiterating and, and actually were raised by so um, Prerna Singh and Colin Dueck, who uh, both... Um, professor of political science in America, and they both argued for the motion, so to the side you were saying. They both spoke about this idea of love of a country creates a we, a we-ness, that, you know, that uh, first person plural, and it can unite people. And if you have an idea of my people, I'm fighting for my people, I'm fighting for my heritage, then you'll be willing to make sacrifices for those you don't even know, but for the good of others. And and obviously Nazism is increasingly bad. So in the, the a fact that came up in the 20th century, uh, nationalism and, and you know, so Indian nationalism, uh, Australian nationalism, this led to 60 countries over the course of the 20th century um, that had been colonies of the US, of the UK, pardon, now becoming col uh, countries in their own right. So, you know, Indian nationalism embodied by Gandhi in terms of freeing the people of India and um, countries ceding from the British Empire. And that happened 60 times in the 20th century. So there's the great power fascism there because these people now have self-determination and um, they can act more in their own interests than they had before. And you spoke about the idea of a drawing people together in what can almost be, and you know, people working together. That's an argument that's been given for religion as well, bringing people together. Uh, and that religion may have helped early societies to develop because of the role it played in bringing together communities and giving people a, a shared goal um, in this case, you know, worshipping God. And Colin Dueck raises the point that nationalism is uh, is the best way we have to make broad constitutional self-government. So to bring as many people together as possible. We can't have a world country, like you said, but we can have large countries. And it gives us a civic religion or a creed. So he, he focuses on the US and he talks about the US's constitution as almost a creed they have. And it's interesting, if you read the first line, we the people of the United States. It starts with we, that's all nationalism, and the people. So Herder talks about the peoples. Well, who are we the people for the Americans? That's something that they have to come to terms with. And, and we've seen recently that even if you say it's a civic religion, a civic creed, we the people, you know, equality for all, all men, um, liberty, common defence, general welfare, blessings of liberty, prosperity, and the pursuit of happiness. Isn't that what it reads? And um, there's a tension between this nationalist ideal, the nationalist myth. This is the American constitution, for an ex as example. But as we've seen, you know, it's only been a month since those protests on Black Lives Matter because those people in America still feel oppressed. They still feel like we are not part of that, we the people. 
And there's many minorities in America, many people in America that despite having this great creed and being lovers of freedom is almost part of American nationalism, it hasn't translated into, into real life. And I might point to nationalism not holding up so well, um, which is an argument made by the, those against the motion. They say that actually you can't split good and bad nationalism. And nationalism, in creating a we, in creating an us, automatically defines them. And it's always in relation to them that people act out of a fear of other. They, you'll make sacrifices for we, but you won't make sacrifices for them. And I think that's interesting because it reminds me of an article I read around, so this year or last year marked the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism in Europe. And since then, the, there's never been a majority in the US Senate as large as there was before the fall of communism after it. And this probably is mirrored in a lot of things because when you have a collective enemy, communism, you know, the Red Scare, the Cold War was the USA versus the USSR. When you have a collective enemy or an outside force, people can draw together and or battle against it. But you lose that focus point, that threat, and people start infighting and you see more division in society. And I think that might be a weakness of nationalism. And I don't know if you could speak to that. But does nationalism need them? Does it need the others to create you know, to help us draw the boundaries and create a we the people scenario. Can you have nationalism without threat from the outside? Because will people always bicker and and um, you know, make smaller groups? And will that always be the case? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I would say with a, in the example you gave of, of the Red Scare and the Cold War, um, when that was taken away, it was harder to get a majority in a Senate. But I think also it's important to remember in a country like America, it is a huge country. It is huge. And it's a coincidence that they all happen to speak English because really it is so culturally diverse across states. I think that um, it's important to understand the, the, the scale of a country before you can start making claims about um, them and we. Because when the country is so big and you take away the, the external them, it's then very easy to uh, internalize the them in this situation. It's very easy to say, well, I'm pretty comfortable in my little bubble. And these people, although they fall under the same American flag and they might be represented in the Senate by another person, they're from a different state. They're thousands of miles away. Why would I trust them? And here we arrive back at the them. It's just too big. And this is kind of the the kind of Herculean strength and Herculean weakness of, of such a such a an idea, which is you can combine so many people, across such a vast area of land together, into one kind of unity, but actually there's going to be a point where it is too big, and once you take away a kind of, uh, common, evil that everyone seeks to r get rid of, they're just going to turn against each other. Now I'm not sure if that's human nature. Most likely. I'd say it is. I mean, most of hu human history is people turning against each other. Uh, civil wars. We see many civil wars today. Even it's it's not like a it's not a a thing of antiquity to um, kind of rebel in your own society. Yeah. To answer your question, I think it it does define a them to have a we. Uh, and of course, you can't have one without the other. But when it's too big, I think it makes it easier. And so the larger you make a country, the easier it is to suddenly be able to choose a new them when the last one has just been gotten rid of. Yeah, a new scapegoat. Or you have a collective force or you have a scapegoat to bring the problems. Because if you have nationalism that says the country is perfect, nationalism is often tied to exceptionalism. An idea that your country is better, your peoples are better. So the German nationalism of Hitler um, you know, it starts boiling over as you have the French and Russian mar armies marching through at the end of the First World War. And they force the Germans to sign the Treaty of Versailles and take the war guilt clause, clause two, four, uh, Article 243. And the Germans hate that because they think this treaty and the people marching through our country are trying to make us inferior, but we are actually better. There's no proof the Germans were better after the war. They'd just been crushed on, on two fronts. But it, that 
defeat actually caused or it was a cause of this rising German nationalism in National Socialism because it was the German people saying, even though we've been crushed, actually we're stronger, we've been done, there's been a wrong done to us. Um, and then they scapegoat the Jews and the Slavs and um, any inferior people as, you know, that's that becomes a them. But then you also have, so you, all of a sudden, if all your problems are blamed on someone else, then you can claim to be exceptional. But you have to recognize that a lot of problems will be caused by human nature or by the fact that people, um, you know, capitalism can tear people apart and some people win, some people lose. So I think turning to nationalism is dangerous. Nationalism can be divisive. It excludes minorities and outsiders. Like you say, it can lead to xenophobia or if you think your country is better. But as you said right at the start, nationalism is about saying our country is best. And that's a dangerous attitude to have. So, yeah, nationalism built around that self-congratulation, the superiority is dangerous because oftentimes reality won't reflect that. And if reality doesn't reflect that, then reflect the fact that you're superior, then you get angry and you get these populist movements that say they call for a golden age of a country or a better time. And, and um, they need to shake up a system that actually isn't that flawed. It's just that they believe it should be better, uh, which I think we might have seen in, in recent times. A separate point, but it's kind of replying to your question, is about how we how we um, make of them and how we make an us. Is uh, it's all about what you have in common, common myths, common history, um, common language, mm. um, but also also just common everyday experiences. So this is uh, is something that actually leads to less cohesion in societies. Is is ever more. Um, wealth inequality and, and inequality of uh, opportunity leads to people having less and less in common. And all of a sudden you say, well, I'm in the same nation as someone, but they live in the capital, in the fancy district, you know, near the central banking district, and I live out in the countryside. What you have more in common with a French countryman or someone living in the countryside of France or the countryside of Italy than you do with someone living in the capital of your country of Britain, let's London, let's say, for this case. So it's hard to say, well, why is why am I turning to nationalism and putting and saying I have a closer bond with this person simply because they live inside the borders of my country than a person who has a much more similar experience to me but lives outside. And I think that's where nationalism has flaws because you, you can say, well, actually it's not it's not logical. We know it's not logical because of its roots. But it, it doesn't make sense the driving force. I think that makes it something dangerous. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd say it as well. Um, I think humans always want someone to blame. If something goes wrong or if something's not working in, in your individual favor, you will wish to blame either a person or an institution which is implicitly made up of people. You want someone to blame because God forbid it was actually your wrongdoing that has led to your demise in a certain criteria so that will always that kind of um longing to shift that blame to uh kind of delegate your your kind of problems and your response onto someone else um that will never go away and thus there will always be a we under them and it's interesting the point you raise about different daily lives uh yet in the same nation yeah it begs the question of of your kind of individual identity versus your national identity or your collective identity. And where is the line drawn between both of those? Because you could be, you could share the same national identity, say we're both from the United Kingdom, but we might live very different lives. Someone might live in London and in the countryside as well. It's a clouded kind of judgment mm. to try and define a specific criteria. Yeah to align yourself with, to say, oh, you're part of this nation, you're part of this nation. And that's why, it, yeah, it's not a very empirical thing. You can't look and observe which nation someone is from. It's a feeling from inside. Uh, and especially with in the age of globalization where it's so easy to move around, people from all over the world live in various different places. Um, there's, there's no way that you could look at someone and, and tell which national identity they subscribe to. 
it's a feeling and that's why it re relates back to the the romantics you know who value that that intuition that feeling over the purely logical reasoning mm. of saying well you were born here this is where you're from that's your identity it's it's not so clear cut anymore yeah and that point of identity trying to pin down it's an interesting thought experiment actually to do to try and pin down so for us the easiest one to do british identity collective experiences we have i thought it was really interesting with the start of coronavirus it was the first real collective experience that everyone in the nation had had and i don't know if you noticed but it always felt to me like now everyone has a point on which anyone they bump into on the street anyone they walk past they can talk about when it first started once we went into lockdown people have different experiences of the lockdown depending on where they're living in the country uh, of how relaxed they've been with the lockdown of you know do you have a garden you can go into and just stay at home or do you really need to go out the house living in a block of flats but coronavirus living through lockdown living through this experience i think has been it has created in our nation in the nation's conscience it has created a, a a fixed point that we can all relate to and that kind of helps bring people together of course it doesn't it is fleeting it doesn't last forever because now there's arguments of how to relax from the virus and people have a different experience that like we say so maybe experiencing coronavirus that's something that's not inherently british maybe it's even made as world citizens we've all had that as world citizens we can all have experienced this but what are you know say for example when when england got to the semi-final of the world cup back in 2018 there was definitely more of a collective spirit for those among us who were football fans and people that got on with the you notice as you were going around it's not it's just a thing kind of as you were going around the country people were in slightly better spirits it was a nice summer already but everyone had this idea going on they were this thing that linked them you know that england's football team is doing well um they don't last forever but it's interesting that that maybe might be something we say as part of being british was like supporting a football team supporting a sports team and sports can be a way that nationalism is embodied especially in test test matches but i wonder what else you would put in into the brit what ideas what customs what traditions which characters in our history do you think form part of that british national nationalism that british like conscience yeah it it's hard to pin down some exact things sport is definitely a huge part of uh being british but also you know if you were american it would be a huge part of being american if you were french it would be a huge part of being french so sport in a way is beautiful in the way that it can transcend a national identity and link you to this kind of greater force but i think for for purely british things i would say we have a very rich history which goes back to so many different events you know the vikings the normans that makes us quite british but then equally that could be a very biased take because we only learn about british history so you know of course i'm gonna think oh britain that has a great history because that's the only one i know about uh, but also i would say the industrial revolution is something that's very british as well so mm -hmm. this kind of era of advancement of of science of kind of reasoning and and underscored by all of that is this kind of idea of philosophy and progressive thinking it it's a very naive view to say that you know britain invented this and britain invented that but in in a way it it catalyzed the the kind of momentum needed for these inventions to occur uh, that has led us to the modern modern day so there's quite a few influential figures behind the scenes there but that's quite historical that's a historical take. So in the modern day, I would say things like going to the pub, right? The pub is a very British thing, has been for centuries. Uh, I don't think it's going to change. But an interesting point actually is the origin of pub. Pub is quite a funny word when you think about it, but it, it's actually an abbreviation of public house. And it makes sense that it was just a family owned house in a village or a town where the family would live upstairs and downstairs you're welcome to come in and they would serve you a drink or some food that's all it is a public house where the public can come into and over the years though those have evolved into pubs and bars that we are now very familiar with and are opening back up to the delight of everyone in the country <laughs> a public house is just the center of a community it's just a place for people to meet to discuss different ideas their working day uh, their daily lives really and to form friendships as well as you know, as the years go on, pubs seem to kind of fall behind as 
kind of places for people to meet. Now that we have uh, things like social media, you don't need to meet people as much and as often, often to be up to date with everything in their lives. So it's kind of a shame that that ideas uh, like going to a pub are kind of falling into into history in a way. The monarchy, I think the monarchy, the queen. Yeah, having a queen is something British. Having a monarchy, or this mm. Queen Elizabeth seems to be a symbol of British identity. Yeah, yeah, the monarchy is a big one. Again, that that falls under the kind of rich, the rich history. Yeah, and then I think Shakespeare, some of the oh, national yeah. renowned, yeah. who's British. So to put your finger. You had to, you know, any listener at home, you want to make a list of ten things to make you feel British, five things to make you feel British. I wonder how much overlap there would be between people if they made that list. Mm. Um, you know, what, what would be the staples that everyone writes down? What would be the, some people, obviously if people have different understandings of their Britishness, different relations to the idea of Britain. You know, it's an interesting question to ask yourself, um, how much is nation, is your nationality a core part of who you are or a core part of you? And that will differ for different people. But it's interesting to find those links and, and that's could help us to, to define British nationalism. But it is something you can't put your finger on. And to to really define it was um, there's an interesting kind of analogy or, or it's from Wittgenstein who said the out of focus photo is sometimes clearer than the focused photo. It sounds counterintuitive, but what it means is nationalism, British nationalism, for example, doesn't have a fixed definition. You can put your finger on this is what it means to be British. You tick off these five boxes, you're British. But there's an overlap. There's a blurry sort of idea of, yes, this is vaguely British. No, that's not British. And you can't put your finger on it. But from from a distance, you can say this is British. This isn't British. You can't say why you're making that delineation. And that might come down to the whole idea of sensibility. It's a it's a romantic idea. It's it's all intuition. Um, and it, but to define nationalism is an interesting task. And maybe it can't be done at all. Maybe nationalism. It is just a myth. It is just there is no tie inherently to to from being from a country that means that you will be tied to those around you. It might just be it is it probably is just what you make of it. it it's interesting that you mentioned the the romantic movement movement that's intrinsic in defining uh, national identity. Rousseau actually spoke about um, the way that civilization corrupts. The people as they grow up. So he had the idea that children were full of ideas and that by having them in a society, they grew up to be more regimented and their ideas restricted to that of the society. So they were less kind of free thinking and that that drew them away from their initial state of nature, which you could imagine from a child growing up in in the wild, uh, surrounded by mountains and trees and lakes and whatnot. Um, what those children would uh, become versus what they are in society. And he, he arrived at this conclusion that civilization corrupts because he, he realized that when moving from Geneva to Paris, the Parisians were very focused on others, right? And they were very materialistic and they focused on what you had and your position. And this was not something that, that he was familiar with in Geneva when he was growing up. So he realized that the identity in a modern civilization is defined in comparing oneself to others around you. So actually, your identity is nothing without the people that you surround yourself with and uh, that you let become part of you. And so it, it has an interesting overlap in, in today's conception of, of nationalism. Are you doing it because you want to or are you doing it because other people are doing it? And going to the pub, is that something that you know, I would think of as being British because I see other people doing it, or is it because I, I actually think that myself going to the pub is a very British sentiment? Mm. It's it's quite hard to 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 peel back the layers on on such an idea like this. I think. I wonder what you what you would make of that in your identity being defined in terms of comparison to others. I agree that it's it's a focus on those norms and the morals that are taught to us, the values taught to us from a young age that shape who we are and given being in a certain country that might change the values you're taught um, but there is a lot of overlap and it does i don't think it ties to nationalism it's not that a british person is taught british values necessarily they are they might grow up in britain 
but they might learn any value system depending on the live if they live in a diaspora community or what class their parents come from that can impact on how they grow up and i don't think it's tied directly to nationalism or a, a nation a nation state um, how you grow up and that's interesting because uh, a link from there might be so in india and bangladesh and pakistan you have nationalist movements and they attempt to, to remove some of that colonial past but any country is that it doesn't have that myth because india has well you might say a, a just indian nationalism could be maybe an icon like the taj mahal but the taj mahal was built by muslims who who invaded india before the british did you know centuries before the british did so any culture like the british culture well actually we were first invaded by the vikings then you had william the conqueror coming in and the normans so it's hard to put your finger on well this is the the true Brit these were the true britons and but then so in indian culture now i remember reading about the the civil we actually spoke about in episode two the indian exams they had for entering the civil service but part of it is um, learning proper table manners and and using cutlery correctly and and speaking in the correct way where uh you know use your fork this way use your knife this way talk to this person in this course uh which is very british but then almost like the indian people the bangladesh people might pride and say this is a way of showing that I am, you know, politeness or manners, they might they might actually value those systems. And you can take, you can draw from other cultures and other societies that it's more of a melting pot or a crucible. It's not so much that this is the British way to behave and this is the the Indian way to behave and the French way to behave and the South African way to behave. It's just actually people will, will draw off each other and you get these agglomerations and as we become a more expanded world, they become more similar and how we grow up and our ideas might become more homogenized but i don't think it's i don't believe it's true that it's tied to a nation or a nation state in terms of how you how your upbringing comes about and you're not trying to you're not kind of fine-tuned into britishness in fact more and more today with a more diverse society you might be less recognizable to the britons of one or two centuries ago yeah that's yeah that's a really interesting point and I think it, it provides a nice segue onto discussing open borders. And actually, with in the age of globalization, there's a, a kind of decline in what historically we would say is culture, what differentiates, you know, British culture from, you could say, Italian culture. And even within Italian culture, the difference between people in Rome and, and people in Venice, mm. because everything is so hyper connected nowadays, it seems that actual culture, the way we perceived it in history, is on the decline. Uh, it's less likely to show up and because we're all likely to commit to a kind of global culture that's uh, increasing today. So this kind of diverges from what we previously conceived as uh, nationalism uh, and forms kind of more of a, a cosmopolitanism type view. Mm. So cosmopolitan is actually a very interesting term. It derives from Greek from two words, which is cosmo and polite. Cosmo, you might be more familiar familiar with, with the term cosmos, which is often used to describe the universe. And in Greek, cosmo means the world. And polite is citizens. So cosmopolitan would be world citizen. And this idea of cosmopolitanism, of, of being a citizen of the world rather than of an, an individual nation, is perhaps a, an idea on the rise uh, nowadays. Uh, that's becoming perhaps increasingly popular, although the term cosmopolitanism might not be, be applied to it yet. And we can see people discussing the ideas, the ideas of open borders and kind of a world without borders in the in the near future. So I was wondering if, if you had anything to say about this idea of open borders, Pierre. Yeah, so we came to this idea of open borders because really with coronavirus, we get the borders shutting. And and then we, in episode seven, we discussed an article by Yuval Noah Harari about uh, surveillance. But the second half of the article, he looks at not solutions, but he's trying to work out what path should be followed to get out of this. And he sees two broad outlines. You can either turn inside and attempt to fix the issue on a on a uh, national scale or a small scale, or you can turn outwards with a form share information, a sharing aid. Um, and, and travel will be an important part. And he thinks that disunity might solve it, but it will take longer and it will prolong the crisis. Whereas a, a more open understanding of information, I think that's a good place to start because information sharing, we must have borders later, but just looking at the global economy and the way information moves. So China, when they first reported the virus, then synthesized the virus um, 
And once they had synthesized it, they shared that with the whole world and medical findings are being shared when they found out that this um, remedia, I can't pronounce it exactly, but there's a drug that reduces mortality rates. Once that was discovered, everyone knew about it. The information was shared. It wasn't kept inside a country. So there was this global outlook. And then you have different examples of reciprocal aid because coronavirus will come in waves and it might strike well, it struck China, then Europe, then America, and now Latin America and Africa. And, you know, countries should, he advises countries or says that countries ought to, in times in good health, give out aid and then respect it back, expect it back in the future when, when they are being affected, but other countries aren't. And that's an important part of that sharing a global, a global ideal. Before we go into the open borders, I want to work like globalization and the future of globalization. The, the issue, this raised an article in The Economist uh, a couple of months ago now, actually. They talked about globalization and the effect that coronavirus have on trade. Um, and there's reckons that the world's good trade will decrease by between 10 and 30% this year in total goods traded. And there's been trade wars. You had Trump and China, protectionism. That can all actually be just things that have carried over from the 2008 crash. You know, eventually people, the job loss and unemployment, maybe people turn to populism, perhaps. They say, actually, that, that can be one solution. That's where I said that can be one solution turning inwards. But the, the coronavirus should actually make us note the importance that we have on migrant workers for the Brits in the NHS and also for doing the mundane tasks people don't want to do and importing importing goods. So we talked about risk in episode four and, and how if you have a supply chain that's done to the minute supply chains, you know, then one one thing going wrong, you have enough risks along there, one thing goes wrong, the whole thing breaks. And what you need to do, rather than domesticating your supply chains, actually diversify them. So if one, it's like having a, a circuit in parallel rather than in series. If one light bulb breaks, actually the other ones still work. And then you look at diversifying supply chains. Because right now, a lot of the globalization was just focused on shipping jobs to China, um, which became kind of a powerhouse of world production. And, and that's kind of what globalization meant, which is outsourcing production of goods and valuables. But actually what we should do is look to other markets that might be able to produce. So if an issue hits a country in the future, they're better prepared to deal with it. Yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting idea, actually. At the moment, it's because you still have nations, right? And you could say, OK, well, the US is going through quite a hard time. We're coming up. We're kind of riding down that peak while they're still going up theirs, it would be easy to say that, oh, we'll provide you some aid now. And in return, you could do it in the future when we might need it. But again, this is kind of a still quite a primitive system of kind of owing people and paying your debts. And it, it might not be as effective as, say, a much larger body, which realizes all the resources that there are in the globe and can freely allocate based on, okay, it might be that the African countries need the aid today, America needs it tomorrow, but it's no longer between country and country where it's just kind of two nations going, well, you owe me, oh, you owe me, oh, you owe me. It's actually a, a, a more holistic view, reallocating the, the, the finite resources that we have. And that would, that would benefit a lot more people. Obviously, it's way too complex a task to kind of realize in a very short space of time for something like COVID-19. But even you could see with the with the shortage of um, the PPE and the ventilators, it would have been a very wise idea to have a, a body control all of the PPE and ventilators mm -hmm. and allocate them based on the information of, well, this, this country has so many cases today, they need X number of beds and X number of ventilators, and we can move them on tomorrow instead of the hoarding that we see in the federal government in the United States and then at the state level as well. What role do you think a body like the UN, you know, we both did a model United Nations and saw some of the inner workings of, of a body like that. What role do you think the UN could play or should be playing or in a, in a time of crisis like this? Or The UN should be at the forefront of discussions, in my opinion. There should be meetings taking place daily to kind of educate everyone on the position of your country and in, at the same time learn about uh, where people are in other countries. We saw very on, very early on uh, with the onset of the virus that countries like Italy were several weeks ahead of, of other countries and were saying, we should have done this, we should have done that. 
And obviously, we we discussed before in episode three on pandemic statistics, how it's very hard to compare countries in their response. But actually, having that kind of foresight and, and learning this knowledge before you set off down that path uh, would be really beneficial for other countries to hear, I think. So I think the United Nations should be at the forefront of it in terms of sharing information, like we mentioned earlier. But again, the United Nations is only a an advisory body you know they don't have power in themselves they don't have armies they don't have any you know weapons per se that countries would have not that you need to use them but the point is is that they don't have power in themselves they're only a platform for people to connect and the un definitely um is already in a in a very key position for countries to work with each other not yeah sure. the issue is right now the un the security council has been rather that hasn't been global leadership Mm. So the Security Council has been rather bogged down. They didn't pass resolutions on coronavirus because the Americans wanted to call it the Wuhan virus and the Chinese didn't. Um, so you get bogged down in this wording and sometimes you find that they can't act. Mm. So it has had a thought. Interesting enough, yeah, it's coming up to its 75th birthday in September, the UN. And it's interesting to see what role it will be playing. And you know, I think hopefully it could play a bigger role in terms of cooperation between countries in the future. But that kind of brings us to to this idea I want to discuss, um, which is the idea of having open borders. And open borders doesn't mean the end of nations. It just means the end of border checks. It's like a massive Schengen area, as we see in the EU. This idea sounds very outlandish until you realise the history of borders and the fact that it's a very new history. So drawing from uh, Rutger Bregman's Utopia for Realists, which is a very interesting book, which you mentioned a bit in the UBI thing. Uh, he's, he, I uh, quote, um, on the eve of World War One, borders existed mostly as lines on paper. Passports were rare, and countries that did issue them, like Russia and the Ottoman Empire, were seen as uncivilized. Besides, the wonder of 19th century technology, the train, was poised to erase the border for good. And then war broke out. Suddenly, borders were sealed to keep spies out and everybody needed for the war effort in. At a conference in Paris in 1920, the international community came to the first ever agreement on the use of passports. So 1920 is, is a century ago that passports came into use. And before then, travelling was harder, but borders weren't as concrete. And for a British person, maybe it's harder to imagine a flexible border because we have the sea in between us we have the channel and we are an island so it's easy to see the borders but especially many mainland countries you'll have families that commute across borders every day and you have a more of a grading at borders than, than a hard line interestingly enough another, another fact towards this so 1920 is when we had passports come about um, but three quarters of all border walls and fences were erected after the year 2000 so it's it's been a more recent thing to be more protectionist of your people Obviously, there's tax benefits to keeping people inside your country. And like we saw for the war, it was benefits of having people to fight for you. It's having cannon fodder, really. And borders are quite a new idea. And I wonder if you had anything else in the history of borders and travel. I guess, you know, for a lot of like a lot of places like Europe, uh, the United Kingdom, especially, and even the border between Ireland and, and Northern Ireland, they are open borders in that you yeah. can pass freely between them without stopping for passport checks. You know, I could get in my car today and drive to Wales or drive to Scotland. And I wouldn't be stopped going across a border. I wouldn't be greeted by soldiers with guns, which I can't speak to, you know, many other borders in the world because I haven't been there. But from what I know of uh, the UK and of Europe, it's very nice to be able to travel freely um, and to not have this kind of idea of oppression that comes with a border. Naturally, when you erect a wall, uh, not only do you keep people out, but you keep yourself in. And this just kind of further perpetuates the nationalism part, which is you're only con you're only concerned with yourself. And once you have that wall up, you don't want to know about other people. You don't want to share their suffering. So borders, yeah, they are very much a symbol of oppression. And it's not nice to hear that three quarters of the physical borders have been put up since the year 2000. Mm. Understandably, that follows a a resurgence in, in terrorist attacks and and uh, people being frightened from the likes of that. We yeah. saw with America as well. Uh, the world definitely changed after uh, September 11th in 2001. Yeah. The idea of the, the borders coming up after the year 2000, 
for someone born Generation Z, sort of year 2000 onwards, it's interesting of how what you know just seems to become the norm. But as you say, 9-11 was such a major thing, but travel before 9-11 was a lot more relaxed. There wasn't the same, as far as I'm aware, there weren't the same scanners and all these bomb checks. And you had to take off your belt as you went through the gate. And so it's it's a very recent phenomenon that travel has become, you know, an arduous task of vetting who can come in and out of your country and the need for visas and um, to travel across across places. So Bregman's idea or you know, this this concept is just open borders. He basically says, throw open all the borders. Anyone can travel wherever they want. And and his reason for this as well, there's, there's um, four studies that were done about the effects of opening borders and how that would help migration. And um, or the, so he says that across these four studies, they found a range of between 67 and 147 percent increase in global GDP would be the outcome of opening borders. And lifting all tariffs on trade would create about 65 billion dollars worth of extra value in gdp or extra value and yeah opening borders to labor would boost wealth by as much by as much as a global wealth as much as 65 trillion dollars which is an astronomical sum so it sounds very good to have this idea of opening borders but it kind of sticks in your throat when you think about it i wondered when I mentioned that idea to you, just open all the borders to the world's labour, what to to any um, to all labourers, or what, what kind of your initial reaction to that, and what what were your thoughts on that before I go into the arguments he makes? Mm. When I think of opening borders, I do think of the the economics involved, and what would change for individual countries' economies as as large numbers of people start moving from one country to another. You could imagine if if several thousands of people flocked into the United Kingdom, and those thousands of people have left their home countries, what what would be the, the imbalance created or, or would there be a, a, a kind of shift in the markets or the economies there? Um, but there's much more to it than just that. I think opening borders would definitely be a force for good and it would definitely be a real positive thing uh, for f- future generations to come, just in terms of cultural diversity and, and freedom of information. Um, I think it would be a real positive to actually see more people from more places on a daily basis and to have that freedom to move wherever you wanted um, uh, with such fluidity that there would be less restrictions on an individual to learn. It's interesting you came down that side of the argument and good for, uh, I I agree with you. doesn't mean it's good necessarily, but mm. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting because there's certain things. It's it's a, something that sticks in my mind before I read this book and before I kind of thought about it. But you have uh, many ideas. So the internet is open services to, to everyone. There's no borders on the internet. So you think why are there borders on labour? Well, maybe that the idea of two people moving. If you think that actually, even in this era of globalisation, only three percent of the world's population live outside their country of birth. Because even if you had the chance to drop sticks. You have to lose all these community ties. First, you have to be able to afford to move. And then you have to give up, you know, your community, the, the family you live in, such a better life. The fact that people would do it shows the difference. So the fact that borders discriminate. If you look, uh, he, he quotes this fact here that a Mexican citizen living and working in the U.S. earns more than twice as much as a compatriot still living in Mexico. In fact, when you um, take into account skill level, age and sex, so you correlate, you... Um, adjust for that. Uh, a comparable Nigerian and American, the difference between their two um, salaries, once adjusted for purchasing power, is eight is a factor of 8.5 times. The American of the same skill level, sex and age will earn on average 8.5 times that the Nigerian earns for doing the same job. And that um, makes any gender pay gap, race pay gap, in intra- national inside a country pale in significance the fact that how much borders discriminate and we never talk about it mm-hmm. i think the issue the reason why opening borders creates so much so they say for an average uh, nigerian if you open borders they could probably increase their income by twenty two thousand dollars annually the angolan ten thousand dollars it's because it's the idea we discussed about the more importance of voting in episode six we said you have the superior and the inferior candidate do you remember that? And the mm. superior candidate was the candidate who favoured the, the poor majority and the inferior one favoured the rich minority. And 
the thing is that living in the UK, we are in we are in the rich minority. We have the the cards in our favour. So, um, if you can consider anyone simply living in the US belongs in the 14% of top 14% of the world's population. And if you earn a median wage in uh, like a developed Western democracy, so the UK as well, and someone earning the median wage belongs in the richest 4% of all earners in the world. Um, so we really are that that rich minority. It's a privilege that we don't realise, we very rarely realise that there's that drastic difference between those incomes that there is and uh, the haves and have nots. And we looked at that propensity of how much money is actually worth to you when you get it for someone earning around you know a dollar a day an extra thousand dollars is is ginormous compared to someone earning hundred thousand dollars a year and that's the the whole thing so the poverty line in the u.s is 17 times higher the poverty line in uh, africa so there is this money that almost is like more money to go around but people don't people don't want to give up and and the thing is that actually it's not a case of giving up the fact that they increase labor markets and you increase if you can increase demand like we talk about helicopter drops if you can increase demand then there's more money to go around there's a finite amount of resources but even in a service sector you can develop more resources it's not that the economy is a game of musical chairs and more people migrate into an area will take the jobs it's in a game of musical chairs he says where people where guests keep showing up and bringing their own chairs to the party so it's not a case that there's not enough jobs to go around it's actually a case of People who come to a country will create more demand and, and in the long run create more jobs. They tend to be more productive and, and as we've seen in the coronavirus crisis, willing to work jobs that people living in that country consider below them. That's sort of the economic argument. There's also the ethical argument, which is uh, take the thought experiment that, that Bregman gives to us. He says, say John from Cornwall is dying of hunger and he asks me for food, but I refuse. If John dies, is it my fault? Well, maybe you only allowed him to die. You're not benevolent, but you didn't murder him. And then imagine that John doesn't ask for food, but instead goes off to a market where he finds plenty of people willing to exchange their goods for work he can do in return. This time, though, I hire a couple of heavily armed baddies to block his way. John dies of starvation a few days later. Can I still claim innocence? And, and Bregman says that this story of John is actually the story of our everything except labour brand of globalisation. That those those um the henchmen that are hired to stop John from going to the market are the, the border guards and security checks that stop people from searching for labour in places where it is needed. And I think that that argument through made through analogy and that story is actually very well made and points to some it highlights some of the assumptions we make about this can be globalised but this can't and what you're actually doing when cutting people off from uh, from opportunities. Yeah, that's a really nice analogy. It really helps me to to see like hidden barriers involved. And like you said, the even the example of the musical chairs and everyone brings their own chair. I mean, that's that's so true, and it's, it's something that so many people fail to realise is that having people there creates the jobs. There's no, yeah. it's, it's not set, it's not finite. You have more people, you put them to work, and you you get more out of it. And suddenly, productivity increases hugely. Um, there will always be people who will make arguments about uh, inflation and hyperinflation and well if if labor costs more for these people then i have to pay this and suddenly my buying power decreases and now the pound is worth less and you'll always have these people that make these arguments but actually there's so much more good that can come about from more people working and more productivity being achieved inflation rises anyway people aim for around two percent but if if you can have more people working across the world, right? Like I kind of mentioned before, that that smarter reallocation of, of resources, that reallocation of labor, yeah. if that could be supervised and overseen by a body which has uh, access to more data, which countries need it, where do they need it? Um, the world was, you know, rapidly develop at, a, at a, a rate that we'd never seen before because we just haven't had access to that kind of, um, that kind of processing and that kind of uh, management. Yeah, and I think that's the kind of point to end on, or for this idea, it seems it's obviously quite utopian. So Bregman says, don't throw the borders open straight away. That's sort of point to finish, it's utopian. Just don't throw the borders open straight away. Um, and you can put as many checks and balances on you want, but 
you know, maybe you have to pay a certain amount of taxes before you claim healthcare, or you don't get the right to vote, or there's certain tests on language and culture before you come in. But any checks you do, it's still more fair than just stopping people from coming in full stop. It's actually the issue with immigration, and I think that immigrants have really been, we talked early on in the episode about scapegoats. If you want exceptionalism, you need scapegoats because you need someone to blame your problems on. I think immigrants have dealt with an unfair, uh, an unfair amount of blame people's problems in, in a form of scapegoating. The interesting paradox is that open borders uh, promote people to return to their home country. Because I think it almost ties into the exceptionalism. People would want to move to a better country for a better job opportunity to earn more money. But they don't want to move there just because it's a better country, just because it's con- this country's greater. You know, I think my country, like American exceptionalism and Mexican immigrants, Mexican immigrants aren't moving to America because they think it's a greater country. It's because they can earn more there. And if you look at back in the um, 1960s, when the borders between America and the US were quite porous, of the Americans that crossed it to find work, 85% of them returned home. But nowadays, only 7% do. Because the harder you make it to cross the border, the less crossings people make. But they will make that initial crossing. So people are always moving. People move from the countryside to the cities. And they move from, um, you know, everyone probably has an immigrant somewhere in their family tree. It's sort of in our nature as humans to, to not stay in one place and, and to travel and to move. Um, but it's interesting that we just have this entrenched idea. We talk about the entrenched ideas of what you've grown up with that for some reason... There should be border patrols and there should be people checking who comes in and out. And sometimes it's good to to have someone who just, even if you don't accept the idea, even if you think that's oh, a bad idea, at least you have to challenge yourself and say, well, why am I, what are the assumptions I'm making about open borders and about migrant labor and about how labor moves around the world? Yeah, I mean, that's been a huge part of the past few episodes we've made on, you know, prejudices and, and biases that we have in, in the way we view the world. and. Again, this is just another another example of a bias that we may have in in, in the way that we look at, you know, borders and of migration. Um, but hopefully, in, in, through researching and perhaps listening to us or something we've said, you become aware of uh, the biases or assumptions or prejudices that may kind of plague your understanding and thought process uh, in approach to these ideas. That has been a look at open borders. Uh, as well as closed borders, the ideas of nationalism within closed borders, the difference with nationalism and patriotism, and also whether nationalism is is a force for good, or if it's uh, less so at the expense of others. That's what I said. I thought that was an interesting discussion. I hope uh, you, the listener, you the listener, enjoy it. And if you do feel your interest peaked and would like to raise any, you have any bones to pick up what we said this episode, or as we said in the last episodes. Any questions would be welcomed. That's episode nine. You're looking forward to episode 10. And you find the links to all the articles we referenced, including some, you know, that interesting intelligence squared debate and on nationalism in the description. But apart from that, uh, stay curious. Mm-hmm.